Well, good morning. Uh, if you are joining us in this series for the first time, we are in the final week of this. We've been going through, through Romans 6, and now we're going to squeak into 7 for just a little bit. But we're trying to answer this question and trying to rationalize the way that we think in our relationship uh, with Jesus, which is, how am I free on this earth? How am I free if we are under technically somebody else? How can the Bible say that Jesus sets you free, but you are, in the, term, in, in the words of Paul, slaves of righteousness? We've realized that, that slavery and freedom, uh, especially the way that we think, don't really go together. How does that work in our relationship with Jesus? And if you haven't re- listened to or you weren't here the past two weeks, I recommend going back and listening to those sermons. Uh, last week, Drew did a great job explaining uh, the vine plant. Um, if you cipher through all the technicalities that he placed in front of us and, uh, t- and him making fun of me for like three minutes, um, I, we can get to the point of the plan. Drew, it, lit- it says vine plant. I don't understand how there's any difference of vine plant. It says vine plant. So from now on, technicality's over. Vine plant. Also, Sherry, it's alive. So we are, we are in the, going in the right direction. I haven't, I haven't killed anything. So we're, we are going, we're doing well. But, but it's, uh, we, we use this illustration because Jesus, in, in his language, uses the vine plant quite often. And now we see that Paul is starting to use this as well. And the reason that they use the vine plant is because Jesus loved to use illustrations that would have been around the people often. Um, basically, there were three different types of plants in the Middle East that would have been all over the place. There was the sycamore fig tree, um, which you probably know the story behind that. There's the olive tree, um, if you know probably a couple stories in the Bible with that. And then there was the grape vine tree. Um, those who grew up in the, in the church maybe read their children's Bible or maybe heard stories from their kids in there. You probably know one, two, three, four, five different stories that involve those different types of tree. And that's because they were all over the place. But the vine uh, that everybody would have come to understand, especially Jesus, was the grapevine due uh, to the consumption of wine in that culture. Uh, wine was the safest drink to consume uh, because uh, it, it removed a lot of impurities and, and insanity in that, in, that lot, in that area. They wanted to make sure that if they drank something that they weren't going to get immediately sick after that. So they made sure that, that the, the wine or the grapevine was all over the place to make sure they can create as much wine as possible. But what they would do is they would take a vine and they would place it on something called a trellis. Uh, if you, have you been around any vine plants at all, you would have seen that they are not on the floor growing or on the ground growing within the dirt, but they are a fruit that, that needs to have some sort of structure involved due to the plant growing and to the receiving of the different fruit that it brings. So if this didn't have a trellis, if this was a grapevine and it didn't have a trellis, it would be growing uncontrollably throughout the ground. And it would be interweaving with the other vine plants, the other grapevine plants that were in uh, the field. And if the farmer came to harvest these fruit, it would be nearly impossible to get the majority of the fruit because he would be stepping on the vine 
he would be stepping on the different grapes. The grapes would be growing within the dirt, and it would just be a big mess. So what they did is they took these vines, and they gave them structure to grow up and out so that the farmer could come and get the highest potential and the best fruit possible. Jesus uses this illustration because our relationship should be one of the same of the relationship with the vine plant. What, he, what they did in this illustration is he took us from our old situation, or in, in the language, he, he grafted us into the vine plant. He took us from a, as a limb from another plant from the old life and grafted us into his life or into his vine so that we can bear much fruit in the language of Jesus. So we have this, we have this complete image of us being taken away and being set free as being grafted into the life of Jesus. And in the illustration of the vine, so that we can grow away from the ground, as Jesus gives us structure and remove us from the dangers of the ground and places us upright so that we can get the best chance of bearing the fruit that Jesus calls us to do. So the question finally comes up as we've talked about this. How does the Old Testament, if you've been around the church, the Old Testament law, if you've been around the church a lot, you know the rules and regulations, if you've read any of the Bible, if you've watched anything online, or if you just talked to another Christian or anything, you've heard of this law or these restrictions or covenant or anything that not only were in the Old Testament, Jesus gives us commands as well. How do we use this Old Testament law and marry it with the relationship with Jesus? Where does the Old Testament law come in in our relationship with Jesus? How in a culture that is majority post-Christian, in a, in a city that we live in that is, is, is progressive, slightly progressive in the way that it thinks and how we, we are supposed to live, and even if we look within the church, how are we supposed to look at the different sects and denominations of church that teach completely different things, and if the different denominations within themselves have broken up, and they even have infighting, as we've seen in the news recently. How are we supposed to live our life when we see all of this? And if you look at, and if you look at the Old Testament law, Paul would have been referring to something called the Moses, or the law of Moses. Now, if you just read your Bible often, it it's probably just says law, but what Paul or the Scripture is referring to is the law of Moses, that these people would have spent their entire life trying their best to follow. And the, and the Bible refers to this over and over again. If you read the teachings of Jesus, the, 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 the spiritual people of that time are constantly going to Jesus asking about them. What about this law? What about this law? Which one's the most important? This would have been in the forefront of their mind. And what the law of Moses brought to them was 613 laws to be exact. That as they live their life, in order to be in the right standing with God, they needed to follow it to a T. And if for whatever reason they broke one of these 613 laws, they would have had to go to the temple and they would have had to pay for that sin, which normally would have come in the form of an animal sacrifice. And if you are standing here and you think, wow, that is so many rules, how could I ever follow those rules? And to my response is, in middle school, I had more rules that had to do with the type of socks that I wore 
than 613 laws that they would have followed. If you remember, if, if you grew up as a millennial in middle school, there were so many different rules when it came to what you wore, correct? There were so many social rules on what it, when it, what it came to what you wore. I remember the first time I went into middle school, in a public school, I sat down, and I just want to tell you, I was tall and skinny, and nothing fit well. There was no jeans that you could have bought that fit my body type. And I remember sitting down for the first time in, middle, in eighth grade, sat down in the chair, and my pant leg went up. And I was wearing no-show socks, what you were supposed to wear, but my ankle was showing. And immediately, some guy looks at me and goes, bro, I can see your ankles. And I was just horrified. I'm like, how in the world am I, am I never supposed to sit down? Am I never supposed to sit down? And I immediately tried my best to make sure that that social something never came up ever again. And I can tell you that the kids nowadays have it easy when it comes to socks. Now long socks are cool, and it doesn't matter. You can just wear long socks all the time. So when you sit down, and your ankle's never showing. So they never had the traumatic experience that I had in that time. And I even asked Kaylee about these different rules uh, when it came to girls. They had way more rules than us guys. So I don't even want to get into that. They had like three times the amount of rules than we did. So yes, rules are something that are all around, and we try to follow them over and over again. So 613 was not actually that bad, but we know if you have any rules around, you are not going to be perfect. So Paul is addressing this group, and he wants them to understand that there is something new on the horizon, that we have to get used to a relationship with Jesus in a new way. That, that the new way of Jesus that he brings is actually freeing and gives you rest. So this is, the, this is something that Paul brings up in Romans 7. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has the authority over someone only as long as that person lives. And Paul gives an example. He says, For example, by law, a, mar- a married woman is bound to her husband as long as she is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. In ancient times, there was a lot of different things that were binding contracts, not only to each other, but also to God where there was promises that, were, that happened between each other as a binding contract or a promise before God. And if you had those, it would pave your life for as long as you lived because only uh, death could remove these binding contracts. Now, there are a lot of things in contra- uh, uh, contracts that we would have seen in the Old Testament, uh, such as Adam and Eve, their relationship with God that was broken. Uh, you had Jacob and Esau with the birthright, which was kind of an awkward situation. You had Saul as the first king as a contract, binding contract with God that he did not fulfill. You had David who broke it over and over and over again. And you even had something called the, uh, the Levite law, which was uh, Samson and John the Baptist, which was a certain way of living. Uh, that was a binding contract to God. And we see that a lot of people just did not follow through with a lot of these binding contracts. But this covenant, this binding law, would have been around these people, and that's why Paul would have used this example. And this is something that in us in, in the United States or the West is something that we just aren't great at. 
Because every binding contract that we have in our life can be getting out of in some way because we realize that everybody has a price. We literally have lawyers that their only job is to get out of contracts. That is their only job, and we can pay them a lot of money to make sure that we can get out of these contracts in life. And if you don't believe me, you can just watch the news right now for like 15 minutes, local or global, and it's literally just a bunch of old people trying their best to get out of laws or contracts that they made previously uh, so they're not bound to anything anymore. But Paul quickly uses this example to illustrate it. Referring to the law of marriage, everyone would have already understood what he was talking about. When a husband and wife come before God and the, and, and, and the people, it was a life-bonding contract that the only way out should have been death. It would have been the same for the law of Moses. This would have been a life-binding contract to the people who believed that God was the only way. And the only way that could get away from the law was through death. And if you broke that contract, you have to provide some sort of sacrifice or death to place in between you and God to pay for that sin. Only death could remove the punishment. Now, this was something we understand because if we, this is something that we, that we understand often because if we break contracts, if we don't own up to something in our life, then there normally is a penalty in our life, right? Like if we, if we don't pay our rent uh, or mortgage, there is some sort of fee. If you don't pay your mortgage, there's a lot worse of a, of a situation there. I recommend doing that. If you don't pay your electric bill, there's some sort of fee. If you don't pay your taxes, uh, there is compounding fee, and you might not even know about that. That must just pop up all of a sudden. So at the end of the day, what ends up happening, because there are so many different penalties and potential penalties in our life, we go from our, our mindset of we pay bills so that we can live to we pay these bills so that we don't get fined, which turns our mind and way of thinking into fear of what is to come rather than seeing the freeing nature of paying bills, of getting shelter and power so that we can live. In the same way, if we look at the rules in the context of our life, we will look at the law and the way of not getting punished. So when God looked at the Israelites back in Leviticus, and he gave them all these 613 laws and said, be holy, be set apart because I am holy. Follow these 613 laws because it will make you holy. I don't think he envisioned a bunch of Christians in leadership running around, standing up on stage and pointing out other people's sins saying, don't do this because God is watching. It wasn't supposed to be used as a weapon to keep people down. No, the law was supposed to be a structure of living in holiness alongside of God. And Paul goes on to explain that. He says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may, might bear fruit of for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to once once 
bound us. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I think a lot of us might resonate with this more than you think. See, we are all bent towards something in our life. We all have things in our life, even as Christians, where we look at them and say, no, they are not right, but in, for some reason, they keep uh, encouraging us and keep drawing us towards these things that we're not supposed to do. Whether it's lust, where our minds are consumed with the desires of the flesh, where it just feels like over and over again our mind and our body is being stripped and shredded away due to these websites and photos and videos over and over again. Or consumption where the Bible term or the Bible term gluttony, where our bodies are literally in control of what we are going to consume or eat next, that we can't even skip a meal without our bodies absolutely being devoured by our gluttony in our mind. Or maybe it's this the removing of laziness, where no matter what we do in our life, it just seems that we can't get anything done and we can't move forward in our life and we are just feel captive to our chairs. See, a lot of this, what I've realized over time, has to do with our personality types, that the way that we are designed. And the reason I know that is because all guys don't struggle with the same thing, that if I go to one of my friends and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, he might look at me like I'm crazy because I'm struggling with it, and he is perfectly fine with that. This is the reason that whenever you go into and confide in your parents or you confide in friends that you realize that every single person around the circle or every single person that you talk to has different types of struggles when it comes to different types of things in our life. That one personality type might really struggle with gossip and one personality type might really struggle with lust, but neither one are perfectly the same struggling at every single time. Something I've really drawn a passion towards is different personality tests in my life. And this kind of came about because whenever I started dating Kaylee, my father-in-law gave me a personality test, a work test, that he encouraged me to do it, and it took forever. It felt like two hours to take this test, Strength Finder 2.0, I still remember. And I went through it, Kaylee encouraged me to take it, and, and look through the book, and I was amazed at how pointed it was. And it felt like they just opened up my mind and read everything about me as I filled out this test. And at first, I felt completely violated, and I didn't want to tell anybody because it told all my strengths and weaknesses. It says strength finder, but in real, real, reality, it was weakness finder for me. But there's so many different, uh, different tests that when it comes to about this, and my favorite one up to this point is something called the Enneagram, um, and it gives, gives you a bunch of different uh, personality types, and whenever you, if you want to take this test, I recommend not doing it on a Sunday, because Sunday's for worship, and you will just feel really bad about yourself if you take this test. Uh, just talk to Benson afterwards, and you can get all the information about the Enneagram after this and how he experienced it. You didn't take it on a Sunday, did you? Oh, that's a wise man. Um, this, is, this is a great test, and, and I'm, I'm just going to give you a little insight about what it's like for me. Um, I have the personality uh, test uh, of the Enneagram 1. I think there's nine types. And uh, my Enneagram type is the perfectionist, uh, which, if, and, there's, and when you take this test, it will give you what you're like at your best, 
and it will tell you like what you're like at your worst. So when you're when you're close to God, you're close with friends, you're you're taking care of your body well, you're getting enough sleep, like all the good things in life, and you're just pointing you in the right direction. This is what you are supposed to be. But if you're like further away from God, you're not getting sleep, you have anxiety in your life, your kids are running rampant, you can't control, your job's terrible. It also gives you uh, that as well. So for me, um, as the quote unquote perfectionist. Um, when I'm at my best, when I'm like the closest to God possible, it says that I have the ability to be very wise and discerning. Um, I, I, I'm very accepting of what's going around me, and I, and I do my best to be humane, inspiring, and, and helpful and hopeful. And I always try my best to make sure the truth is heard, and I can do it in a really gentle way. Um, I also have the ability, uh, this is at my best, this isn't always, so don't judge me if I, if I don't do this right. I also have the ability to be really realistic and show people that as well. But at my worst, um, and, and poor my wife, when I'm at my worst, um, I can be hypercritical of both others and myself. I can be very picky. I can be very judgmental. I can be very... Uh, perfectionist on like the negative side. So like any, I can walk into a room and point out 650,000 things that are wrong and I just internally die. And I try to just not tell anybody because I know it's not good. I I can be very uh, uh, badgering and I can correct people really quickly. And I, and people like uh, me use the frame, just do the right thing. Uh, But we're not very good at explaining the right thing at our worst. Um, We're impatient, we're never satisfied, um, we're scolding, abrasive, and and the the best thing of all is we are constantly angry. Um, That is the Enneagram One. Um, Lisa is also the Enneagram One, so that might be too realistic for her, and I apologize for that. But as one pastor um, that I really, um, really seek out, and I I see because we're the same uh, personality type, is Pastor John Mike Comer, and he... Uh, in his book, writes about um, this scene in Avengers. If you're, if you're an Avengers fan, there's, there's a part uh, where Bruce uh, Banner is talking to Captain America where he's just about to fight all these aliens that come in. And Captain America looks at him and says, hey, Bruce, this might be a good time to get angry. And Bruce responds by turning him as he's turning into the Hulk. And he says, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry which I resonate way too much with in my weakness. And every time I, I get really tired, I just have this constant desire to just be frustrated and angry in my life. And every time my weakness separates me further and further away from my community, and it sets, separates me just further and further away from my Creator. See, if our goal is, or if somebody just tells you, You just need to stop because it's bad and God does not like it. You will fail every single time. Because if you can, if if we can conclude anything over the Old Testament and even the the first part of the New Testament, that if, if it is up to our own strength, that we will fall back into captivity over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how many prophets and teachers and high priests or kings or any wise people come about and tell us not to do it. We will fall every single time if it is up to us. Do any of you resonate with that? So we have this image of the vine, 
which is so important because it explains the new way of a relationship with the Father. When you become a Christian and we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we are grafted into the vine of Christ. This becomes our everything. It becomes our strength. It it becomes where we get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is where we get our hope. This is where we, where we don't have to stand by ourselves anymore because Jesus is doing all the standing for us. The law, or Jesus commands us, is the trellis of the vine. It is the direction. It's designed to give you and to give you the answers and to point you to more freedom and not to hold you down. If the vine did not have a trellis, it would spend the rest of its life trying to grab onto something just to give it structure. Following the rules of the law is not what gives us life. Jesus is the only thing that can give us life. And that is what separates us by the way of Jesus, by every other false religion, that we rely on Jesus and and He is what gives us life and not the rules. What Paul is trying to get the Romans to understand is if you follow the law only, if you're trying your best not to sin because of sin's sake, then you will not get life, but you will fail. But if you follow the path of Jesus, you will naturally through faithfulness be guided and moved up and away from what holds you down on this earth and be pointed directly towards God. As one theologian said perfectly, it is not the law that dies, but the believer. The law still points to the kind of living that is pleasing in the sight of God, but the believer is dead to all forms of legalism so that he will engage in upright living as the result. In the language of Paul, he says we need to abide in Jesus. We need to die to our old self and be raised again with Jesus in his terms to bear the fruit for God and not for death. But what is the purpose of fruit? Well, fruit tells us what kind of tree or vine it is. It's hard to tell what kind of tree or vine something is by first glance if it doesn't have any fruit. The fruit is what defines the vine. The fruit is what defines the plant. So Paul is trying to make it clear that before we are grafted into something that gives us no life, we need to make sure that we are grafted into something that will give us life and it will show no matter what's going on. If we are grafting into something that does not produce good fruit, we will produce bad fruit in the process. But if we are grafted into the vine of Jesus, we will naturally, in the language of Paul in Romans 8, we will become like Jesus and people will only see Jesus. Because you are judged by your fruit and you are named by your fruit. So if the only thing that people can see is your fruit and it is Jesus, then that is what you're defined by. I remember uh, Jonathan, he's in, the, he's in the drum set, but he uh, decided a couple years ago 
I was going to talk to him, but he's behind me. Uh, I was, uh, he bought these two... Uh, hey, Jonathan, I'm going to talk about your, your sticks. So Jonathan, a couple years, three years ago, he came home and he was super excited about this. He spent way too much money on two sticks. And they're like, they're trees. I'm like, no, those are sticks. And he went in his backyard and he placed these two... No, you stay up here. You came up here. He took these, these two sticks and he planted them. He didn't really plant them. I think he just shoved them into the ground and hoped for the best, stuck them in the ground. And he, and he said, like, these are cherry trees. These will produce cherry trees. But for me, I could not define that tree because there were no fruit. There was no fruit yet. And actually, the funny thing was, is that the night that he stuck those trees in the ground to plant them, one of the dogs thought that it was a stick and, went and did, did stick things to it. And he had to replant it, and uh, one is significantly shorter to this day than the other one. My question to you, Jonathan, is how long did it take before that tree has produced good fruit? Have you gotten a full tree of perfectly good cherries yet? Nope. Not yet. (laughs) My point of all of that is it does not happen overnight. You can go now. When you are grafted into the vine of Jesus, I hope this encourages you, it does not happen overnight. When you are baptized in the name of Jesus and you're grafted in and you're given new life and you're surrounded by other Christians, God does not expect you to be a perfect Christian overnight or maybe even a perfect Christian at all. That even Jonathan Sticks took at least three years to pop one little cherry on them that tasted terrible. But it takes a lifetime of following the way of Jesus. It takes a lifetime of connected and being devoted and staying faithful to to being a faithful disciple of Jesus. So that one day we may bear the fruit of Jesus. And when people look at us, the only thing they can see is our Savior. If your life doesn't change overnight and you've accepted Jesus... I just want to say welcome to the club. It's called the church. A bunch of of people that are trying their best to be faithful and show the fruit of Jesus, but we are not perfect, and that's why Jesus is so important. See, something our church has been walking through over the past few weeks is a spiritual practice of submission. And I've encouraged all of you to go on our website and, and go to the, the midweek teaching, which kind of guides you through a teaching every week around a certain spiritual practice. But we are trying our best to, to figure out what does that look like to be submissive under the, the rule and the kingship of Jesus and, and also trying to follow these different rules. Because we do believe that the, if you want to live the good life, If you want to be free, the most free in your life that you could be, the best possible way to do that is to be under the submissive ruleship under King Jesus and nobody else. Because if we try truly to do things on our own, if you just read any story in the Old Testament of these people wandering in the wilderness, trying their best to follow 613 laws, they get a king, they get a second king, they get a third king, the kingdom splits. They get a bunch of kings after that, and they're just trying their best to follow God and themselves at the whole time, and they fail every single time. As Jesus once said to the teachers of the law in John 10, 
I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I believe Jesus can give you that good life. How much more are we free when God takes you? He gives you life. He gives you structure and points you up and out from everything else in your life. So there is so much more freedom and rest in your life. Rather than being consumed with, the legal, with legalism and with rules and restrictions. That the vine, the picture that we have, is one of a vine plant and we are the branches being grafted into the vine. And his rules are not something that brings us life because we're not connected to the trellis. We're connected to the vine. But the righteousness that Jesus brings in his commands will give us the best life of freedom because we are no longer being drugged around by the ground, but he brings us upright and points us to the Father just like we do to the vine plants. So God, as we study your scripture more and we study how to figure out how to be submissive under you, and we figure out our relationship with the law and with Jesus, I pray that we make sure that we follow you. Because we believe that if we want to live the best life, if we live the good life, as theologians said over the history of the church, then our best possible way of receiving freedom is to be connected to the vine and following your commands. God, I pray that the legalism of our hearts, of us just trying to do the right thing for good things' sake, removes, but we follow Jesus and trust in Him in His upright living. God, You are so good. God, I want to thank You so much for fathers and the example that Your Son set and that You've set before us through generations and generations. God, I do believe You are good. And I ask this all in Your Son's name. Amen. Amen.